welcome to Talking Property, where you get the inside information into what's going on in the Australian and Asian property markets from leading property and investment experts. Welcome to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property podcast. I'm Nelson Yap, editor and publisher of Australian Property Journal. My guest today is Benjamin Martin-Henry, Head of Real Assets Research Pacific at MSCI. Welcome back to the Australian Property Journal Talking Property Podcast, Ben. As always, Nelson, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. Well, you've got some interesting stats about the second quarter. A lot has, I mean, you know, we say that again. It sounds like um, some sometimes people listen to this, they think it's the same podcast when I say a lot has happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but a lot has happened. You've been very busy. Um, tell us about what's happening on the capital transactions and commercial deals in the second quarter. Absolutely. It's one of those things where we say a lot has happened because a lot has happened, but the numbers don't really show that No, because every, everything is slowing down and everything is down. But that doesn't mean that there's not stuff happening out there. There's heaps of stuff going on behind the scenes trying to get deals across the line. But mm. what we're seeing at the moment is that deals are way down on where they were last year. Yeah. Uh, we're sitting around 50% down compared to Q2 last year. Wow. Um, and Q2 results are the worst kind of results since 2011 mm. and the biggest year-on-year change since, unsurprisingly, since the GFC. Yeah. So it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a bit of a quiet year. Um, but as we've discussed a number of times, it's been hard to kind of, talk about percentage changes in the world of transaction volumes over the last three years because we've had these black swan events and then we've had the bounce back from these black swan events. So we've had percentage changes of 500% then down 500%, then up 300, then down 200. So it's all over the place. Um, But definitely 2023 has been a very slow start and it's hitting, it's really impacting all sectors as well. It's not just the, the much maligned office sector that's seeing slowdowns. It's across retail, industrial, and even the alternative sectors as well. Right. So when you say like, um, you know, the, the deals have been Im- impacted, uh, what, what what's the sort of, you know, vo- volumes uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, compared to the previous uh, comparable periods? Mm, so we're looking at around $8 billion in, in Q2, which took mm-hmm. us to around $15, 16000000000 billion for the first half of the year, right. which is around 50% below those five-year averages. We're having to extend out our, our average range because we've got to account for these real blips and real spikes of the last few years, but we are well below those long-term averages. So sort of $15, 16000000000 at the moment, which is it's pretty quiet. That is, um, that is a sharp slowdown. And again, these are the results we kind of saw just after the GFC. So mm. that kind of gives people a bit more of a context about what we're talking about here, that this isn't just a, a COVID-induced type blip. We're, we're back to levels we haven't seen in sort of 16, 17 years, really. And when we're looking at, you know, what's sort of, uh, what are the trends or factors that are creating this, you know, this sort of uncertainty in the market. Obviously, interest rates is one of them. Yeah. Uh, rising costs of debt. But are there any other factors that are impacting it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, each sector kind of has their own little nuances at the moment, which is interesting. Yeah. Generally, when, when markets slow down, the same slowdown impacts all sectors. Right. But we're not really seeing that now, which is, it does make it fun. It does make it interesting. And I think importantly, it creates opportunities. There's lots of opportunities out there as well, mm. whereas it's just a complete downturn across everything. It, there's not a lot of opportunities out there. Um, but as you rightly pointed out, interest rates have been a big issue 
and that has increased that, that cost of debt, of course, which will impact the price people are willing to or able to pay for, for assets. Um, I guess the biggest talking point is still that office sector, which is going through an actual structural change, obviously with people working from home more, occupancy rates significantly down on what they were pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Our major markets, Sydney and Melbourne, for example, vacancy rates are, are in double digits and double long-term averages, kind of at that 13, 14%. That's a, I mean, that's a huge change. Mm-hmm. Um, incentive levels in Sydney at around 40%. That's double what they were sort of three years ago. Melbourne, Absolutely. Yeah. pushing 50. So there's a lot of issues in, in, the, uh, in the office market, which is why we've seen such limited transaction volumes in the office space. And the office sector is the largest commercial property sector, and it does account for the majority of transactions most years. Mm-hmm. So when that slows down significantly, you'll see a massive, um, a massive slowdown in the overall, in the overall market. And office volumes in Q2 were only around a billion dollars, which is not a heap. No. Compare that to, in, compare that to industrial, which is 2.4 billion. Right. Um, weight significantly more than double that of the office sector. So, I mean, there's a lot of lot of issues out there, but that is creating a little bit of opportunity, particularly in that retail space. Right. Um, we've talked about it before that retail prices fell quite significantly in 2020 as a result of COVID, obviously, and non-essential retail mm-hmm. services were, were shut down, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And retail didn't really recoup any of that that value loss so it does mean there's significant opportunity in that retail space at the moment for for good assets to sell at reasonable reasonable discounts and sort of when we look at like you know you you talked about the deals there's not much happening and when you know office is only a billion dollars and industrials a bit doubled over that um what are the yields that we're looking at i mean we recently ran a story where i think we there was a homemaker center that just sold on a seven percent yield. I haven't seen seven percent mm. in a long time <laughs> for a That's deal. Been a while. Yeah. Um, what are the yields that are achieved uh, being achieved on average? Do you have figures on that? Yeah. So on average, we're mm. looking at office around five point two, right? Um, which is up from a bit of a lot. I mean, there's so there's evaluation yields. If you look at transaction yields, then I mean mm. the spread is huge. Right. Anything that's trading, I mean, we're not seeing anything sort of sub five at the moment, and we're pushing wow. sort of eight percent on some office yields. So it's hard to. It's one of those. It's it's that time in the market where an average kind of doesn't tell you the full story. Mm-hmm. It's more the the spread that I find interesting. And again, we're looking at anywhere from five to eight on some of these office assets, which is quite significant. Yes. But there have been sharp increases in in yields um, on a valuation basis. Offices are kind of averaging that five point two. Retail's around 5.4 and industrial's 4.6. Industrial's seen the sharpest change. It did mm-hmm. hit around just just crept below 4% not 12 months ago. Yes. So that's a that's a that's a big jump. I've been surprised by the industrial sector really. It, it's it's kind of it's an interest it's an interesting space. Prices got extraordinarily toppy, as we know, over the last couple of years. Yes. Um, but looking at valuations for the industrial sector. Tracking quarterly capital growth, so quarterly value changes, um, industrial is the very definition of a soft landing. Mm. Over the last couple of quarters, we've seen the pace of quarterly capital growth slow down, and we're now sitting at around zero for industrial capital growth. But it's flat now. So it's come from a sort of 4% back in June 2022 to down to zero now. That is a very slow slowdown, and it does appear that value is of basically bottomed industrial values out, which I do find a little bit surprising. Mm. They've already called the bottom of the market. I would have thought there'd be some kind of price correction in that space just because values got so toppy. But we haven't seen it. 
And I guess that is because whilst cap rates are going up, the rental growth is so strong in that industrial sector that it's more than keeping values um, level, really. So that's a bit that's a bit of an interesting one, I find. Yeah, I was about to say that I've I've been obviously reading a lot of the agency reports um, about industrial and the demand for space hasn't like slowed. Uh, mm. they, there's still a lot of tenants out there looking for space, whether it's cold storage or uh, or logistics or um, you know it's general storage and then you've got also the data centers that are still or data centers that are still um looking for more space particularly now that uh there's more of that generative ai coming into it they're going to need more processing power so demand for industrial space hasn't slowed um at all it appears no, absolutely. It's I mean, vacancy rates are sub one percent according to some agency reports. So it's mm. definitely tight out there, and that will naturally push our rents up. And it's one of those funny ones. And I, I say this to offshore investors all the time. And they, they look at me a bit like, "What's what the hell's wrong with you? Why are we listening to this guy?" When I say that we we just we don't have a lot of land in Australia, and they go, "What on earth do you want about you? What are we? The sixth <laughs> largest country in the world?" Like, yeah, look, if you want to, you're more than welcome to build a shed in the middle of the desert if you want. That's entirely up to you. But yeah. There's no roads there. There's no water there. There's no electricity mm. there. To build all that is going to cost an absolute fortune. So you tend mm. to build in and around the major metropolitan markets. And there's just no space left. There's very limited space available for that. So we are quite land constrained in our population regions. So until we're able to unlock some of this land, Industrial is going to have pretty low, uh, pretty low vacancy and pretty low supply increase mm. over the next few years. So rents are going to be able to be pushed a fair bit. I think with that, we have to top out at some point. There's no way we can see these. You know, you read a lot of forecasts saying we're going to see 10, 15% rental growth in the industrial space for the next thousand years. I can't mm. really see that happening. At some point, it has to, it has to um, reach a plateau. Mm. But again, until there's more land unlocked, it's un- it's unlikely. But I'm still a little bit surprised that values haven't adjusted, uh, particularly as that that's obviously the famous spread between government bond yields and property yields, uh, which everyone talks about. Whether you believe mm. the theory or not, everyone talks about it. It got incredibly tight for industrial and government bond yields. You're talking sort of a 20-bit spread between the two. Now, that is not a huge risk premium. Um, so I, again, little surprised that industrial values haven't corrected at all. Mm, that's, it is um, because what does it look like overseas when you when you look at the you know the figures from the other major markets like mm. uh, UK, US, Canada w- for their well, industry? Yeah, mm. we did see corrections in those markets. Again, it kind of had to happen. I mean, right. I made a prediction at the end of last year saying that industrial will be the best performing asset class, but see the worst year on year change because it came mm-hmm. off such a high base, sort of returns of 30%. That definitely will be the case, I believe. I'm still still on track to being right. Um, but we saw that in the US, I think LA industrial market was returning around 90% over a 12 month period. Now that's that's extraordinary, right. but, yeah. it, but it has corrected. Same in the UK, it was industrial was the best performing asset class, but it had a, a very sharp slowdown. Mm. values plummet sort of 10 15 percent but it has bounced back those two markets tend to bounce back a lot they're a lot more um erratic those markets they're not as stable as our markets just because their valuation methodology is slightly different right um but we did see significant changes in in industrial values in those markets so we're a little bit different i guess we haven't seen 
well, we, we're definitely different. We haven't seen any correction in industrial values. So, I again, I am still a little bit surprised that we haven't seen any kind of correction in that industrial space, particularly as what we saw overseas as well. Um, values have changed in the industrial space. And Australia, we, we tend, our industrial performance has basically been driven by online retail. We don't really mm. have a manufacturing sector to fall back on, whereas oh, yeah. the US and, and um, US and the UK does. And yet still we saw industrial values um, plummet. So industrial is a hard one to pick. Our micro to macro market data and portfolio management tools power more informed decision-making across the investment process. Our real asset solutions enable clients to more effectively identify opportunities, conduct pre-deal due diligence, analyse performance and risk, and build more sustainable multi-asset class strategies. Well, so what about uh, the retail sector? Um, you know, the, the CBDs, the sub-regionals, the neighbourhoods, what's happening there? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a strange one, retail. And mm. I mean, I've said this multitude of times. I never like it when people just look at retail as a whole because there's so many different types of asset classes Absolutely. retail. Mm. So there's always different performance. A large format retail and neighbourhoods have been fantastic over the last sort of three, five years. They absolutely killed it, outperforming industrial as well. But we are starting to see those sectors pair back a little bit. Comes as no real, real surprise, of course, mm. um, particularly in the large format spaces. Discretionary uh, discretionary spending falls um, because of higher interest rates, higher inflation. Uh, there's less patronage towards those centres and therefore their values will slightly fall. So we have yes. seen a bit of a shuffling of some of these segments. Neighbourhood retail is now one of the one of the worst performing retail asset classes. Mm, but again, interesting. It's, yeah, but it has mm. come off such a high base as well is, is, is kind of the thing. Mm. So neighbourhood retail is performing sort of 16, 17% or returning 16, 17% just mm. last year. So it's it's natural that you'll start to see a slowdown in that because that's just unsustainable performance. Right. So it has come down. Whereas conversely, you look at some of those larger shopping centres, the super majors, they're now they're now looking to be the best performing retail asset classes mm. because they're coming off an extraordinarily low base because obviously a lot of them were shut down during during COVID, that their values felt their values fell quite significantly. So their slowdown, so to speak, is far less pronounced really. So it is, uh, as I was saying before, you can't really throw a blanket over these core sectors. They're all kind of operating at their own paces and they've all got different factors that are impacting them. So it's, it's, it is quite interesting at, at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think like, um, you know, I, I saw the statistics from Centre Group talking about the Westfield centres actually mm. have been performing quite well. So yeah. obviously they've got their formula right in terms of getting customers and people in the doors and then spending money and all these things and i've been traveling around asia and i noticed you know the, the thing that they're doing a lot is that sort of hub type um uh, developments obviously you know it's been prevalent in asia for decades now but yeah, yeah. You, you put an apartment there you put a gym you put all these different things boom and the shopping center um so you create that hub rather than just being a shopping center um so I yeah think, hmm. it's all about placemaking and yes terrible buzz terms like was it retail attainment all that all those all those yes. horrible terms it is yes. all about that it's it's getting people in there and shopping centers it, it's one of those things you, you have to work at shopping centers you can't just mm. chuck them to an agent and they go here lease it out for me you do have mm. to work at them change up your mix up do you do your demographic research find out what people want in mm. the area and constantly evolve constantly change them and there was obviously that craze or that phase just before COVID of getting the F&B mix right. You know, was it 
30% of space should be F&B. Was it 40? Did you push it too far? Have to pare it back a little bit. Hmm. Did you create too much competition and they were going out of business? Uh, various retail, sorry, various um, F&B places going out of business in the same complex and had vacant space. So you do have to work at them a lot, a lot more. And once you get it right, they're great assets. And yes. they perform extremely well. Hmm. So, but of course, if you leave them and don't do too much to them, they do start to perform quite quite poorly because you do have to change that that mix up. So, they're a little bit harder than uh, your traditional office asset to 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 make sing. But again, if you do, then you can then they do perform extremely well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you've got major shopping centres that perform really well, and they just they have their tenancy mix right. They've got their international sort of fast fashion chains, and then they've mm. got their food and beer. They've got the department stores. So it sort of creates everything for everyone. Um, exactly. Mm, mm. massive hubs and you get more a lot you get a lot more services in them these days i mean for a lot of yes, money you can find a, a bank mm. on a high street anymore they, they don't exist anymore no, um, no, they're, no. All in, they're all in shopping centers and you get health mm. services dentists i went to a physio the other day it was in a shopping center There's yes a lot more of those kind of life stage things in shopping centers these days than just going and picking up a new polo shirt they got a lot more a lot more stuff there to keep you there for a few hours as well and generally if you're wandering around going from your physio to your dentist or whatever you might mm. pass a shop and I know you look in the window, they all sit and go, oh, I think I might need a new set of golf clubs. You know, I'll just pop in there and pick up a couple of clubs. <laughs> yeah, that's always the case. I'm always changing clubs. I blame the clubs <laughs> for the problem that I have with on the golf course rather than Absolutely. myself. Absolutely. It's never yeah, your fault. No, it's, it's, no. No, it's, it feels better that way because if you start blaming yourself, then ooh, like you're digging slope. a rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> but what about the alternatives? Uh, senior housing, mm. uh, development sites, apartments, um petrol stations pubs hotels what's happening there uh it's it, i mean everything's slowing down it's, it's yeah. just where we are in the cycle but some sectors are obviously performing better than others mm-hmm. and alternatives continue to garner a heap of offshore uh, offshore alternative um these alternative sectors continue to garner a heap of investor interests particularly pubs i mean we do call it alternative naturally yes. but it's as i always say it's kind of the, the alternative stalwart in australia We've seen sort of six and a half billion dollars worth of pubs transact over the last two years or so, which is a heck of a lot. Yes. And even the other day, didn't PAG pick up KKR share in Australian Venue Co. or whatever it was for about yes, that's right million. So yes. even more appetite for for pubs. And uh, the just this week, the Red Cape sold that's four right. more for yeah. over seventy mil. So mm. yeah, mm. It's, there's just so much appetite in that. That alternative space, I mean, between sort of 20, you know, over five-year periods of 2014, 2018, 2019, um, the alternative sectors, as we classify them, accounted for just around 4% of mm. volumes. But since 2019, they've accounted for around 15% of all volumes, which is quite a lot. And just for another percentage, you in 2023, alternative sectors account for around 20% of all transactions. Right. So they are making significant inroads. These yeah. are smaller sectors, so you're never going to see massive numbers in them just because they are smaller, but that's how these sectors develop, of course. Mm. And they each have, again, they each have their own little nuances as to why they're performing well this year or have performed well in the last couple of years. And self-storage is always the easiest one to jump to because in, during COVID, we never, none of us had enough, or most of us didn't have enough room for two desks and office chairs and et cetera in your spare bedroom. So mm. we had to store stuff. So that really boomed, but that's pairing back a little bit now. Conversely, Obviously, student housing was a no-no in 2020, 2021, because obviously students weren't allowed in the country. Yep. And predominantly, student housing houses overseas students. So that fell by the wayside. But now there's a lot more activity in that space because 
students coming back to Australia. And obviously, there was a lull in construction activity mm-hmm. over those years because there was a very uncertain future. So now there's not enough space for students. So that's starting to to pick up again. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you've got healthcare, which is standard joke. I've never seen a headline. I've certainly <laughs> never seen you, you write a headline saying we have enough health healthcare. So there's always going to be a lot of appetite for those healthcare assets. Absolutely. And they've probably accounted for at least a third of transaction mm. volumes in that alternative space over the last few years. So hospitals, medical offices, R&D, even childcare, they're all still performing, or they're all still attracting a lot of investor investor interest. And I, I don't see that changing any time soon. And um, of course, what about the new asset class, <laughs> Build to Rent? You, there was, you guys said, um, I think in the MS. CI data that um, <clears throat> it was ahead, deal activity was actually ahead um, uh, in the BTR sector. It was. I was mm. mostly driven by one acquisition, of course, which was uh, Mitsubishi picking up a, a chunk of Murbax, a few of Murbax assets. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it was actually the only sector that saw, saw an increase in activity. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. coming off an extraordinarily low base, of course, but still, still, it's, it's positive <clears throat> signs for the sector, you know. Yes. Um, and there's so much activity. There's so much discussion about new projects coming out. Um, it's just really starting to really starting to grow in Australia. Obviously, there's some issues with you know, you know yields changing, et cetera, et cetera, and a lot of discussion, particularly in your neck of the woods, about rent caps. And, and there's this thin cap legislation as well, which could cause issues for the sector. Mm-hmm. But there is still a lot, lot of activity, a lot of appetite. And this is kind of no real surprise that during these periods of slowdown in, in overall property performance and people start looking at assets that just simply return a nice stable steady income stream which is exactly what built to rent multifamily is all about it's that yes. steady income stream and australia's residential fundamentals aren't great at the moment we do need more rental accommodation we need more rental accommodate we need more accommodation in general in australia stop. yeah exactly yeah. Mm. particularly if we're expecting another one and a half million people over the next five years that's fantastic yeah. we need that to boost the economy but it's one of mm. those catch-22s we need these people, but they're going to put significantly more pressure on our already strained residential sector. Mm-hmm. So where are you going to put them? We're obviously going to bring some of these people in and they're going to be working on developments to build residential assets, but that's all going to take time. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be significant pressure on that sector. So um, adding to the stock by builder is, is obviously going to be a great thing. And I was looking at the numbers the other day, actually. is So overseas investors are, count for around 30% of transactions in most years in, in Australia. Right. Um, and in terms of office retail industrial, well, ignore retail because obviously investors don't really invest in retail in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of industrial and office, they sit around that 25, 30% mark. But for built to rent, looking at construction, they account for half of developments. Right. And okay. If, and that's on an equity basis. If you look at the domestic players that are building, a lot of their funding comes from overseas. So if you do it on an equity and debt funding basis, obviously as investors probably account for around 70% of wow. built around assets. So there's a reason for this. They know it works overseas. Yes. There's no reason it won't work in Australia. So they're piling into the space. It's much more mature overseas too. Obviously we know that, um, yeah. you know, in Japan, in mm. uh, UK, well, UK developed a, a bit, you know, only a few years ago, but mm. Japan and uh, the US, it's quite mature. So to see Mitsubishi estate coming in, it's they understand that product because they've had that in Japan. So they know that uh, the background of built to rent. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And if you look overseas, they are, um, I did a piece on this other 
couple of months ago, just looking at the volatility of mm. the various sectors. Obviously, industrial is the most volatile because it has been booming over the last few years and it's obviously returning the, the highest returns. But on a, on a volatility basis, in the UK and in the US, multifamily is the least volatile of the major property sectors. Right. And again, it yep. speaks to that whole point of it's there for a solid, stable income stream. Mm. And low volatility is kind of what you want in this market at this, yes. this time. If you can have a guarantee, you know, then I call it 5% whatever income return, you'll kind of take that at the moment. Our micro to macro market data and portfolio management tools power more informed decision making across the investment process. Our real asset solutions enable clients to more effectively identify opportunities conduct pre-deal due diligence, analyse performance and risk, and build more sustainable multi-asset class strategies. So in terms of what we talked about last time, um, the price gap expectation. Oh, and yeah. Yes, and also that, that standoff between buyer and seller expectation. What has yep. changed uh, since then? Not a lot. <laughs> They're still, still not. There. Yeah. <laughs> They're still arguing still not, about yeah, it. They're still not yeah. coming to the party. No, it's um, and uh, again, it's because it's because of what we talked about last time. There's just not a lot of distress in the market. There's still not a heap of pressure on sellers to sell, mm-hmm. and until they need to sell, they're not willing to drop their prices to significant mm-hmm. discounts. Having said that, we have seen a few transactions that were rumored to be selling last time we spoke. They have finally closed, like one market, forty-four market, etc. Yes, and those those discounts were quite uh, quite significant. Yes. Um, but we still see that by and large buyers do want uh, a bit more of a discount compared to what sellers are willing to offer. Um, Sydney office, Melbourne office sit around that 30% mark. And that doesn't mean that buyers want a 30%. Well, I'm sure they want a 30% discount. They probably want a 100% discount, but that's the, that's the gap between them. And generally in the negotiation, you meet in the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that kind of means that we're expecting um, these assets to sell for around 15 16, 17% discount, which is kind of what we're seeing in, in the market at the moment, depending on which valuation you, or which value you pick, either the last one or one 12 months ago. Um, but it hasn't really moved too much, that gap. It's still it's still pretty wide. And it is one of the widest that we actually track globally. Right. You know, I think Sydney offices and Melbourne offices, they're, they're exhibiting some of those widest gaps that we've seen globally. And that kind of makes sense because everyone keeps saying that our, our office market hasn't corrected nearly enough. I'm still not sure why everybody wants our market to crash, but so here's what it is. Um, we haven't said values have corrected nearly enough, so that gap is significantly wider than what we're seeing in, in London and New York, for example, where we have seen a significant uh, slowdown in off those office valuations. Yeah. So in, in the MSCI price gap expectation, price expectation mm-hmm. gap, sorry. Um, you know, name, isn't it? It's, it's called the bid ask spread. <laughs> the the what's the what's the gap we're looking at right now to re, you know to return these sectors or these markets into normal liquidity or normal levels of liquidity. So Sydney and Melbourne office, we're looking at yeah. around that gap is thirty percent. Right. Meaning okay. again, bear in mind you've got to meet in the middle, so fifteen sixteen percent. Mm-hmm. Um, Sydney retail that gap's around fifteen percent. So again probably 7%, which is speaks to my point that we saw retail values correct so much 20, uh, in 2020 um, that that gap is a lot uh, a lot more, a lot smaller because values corrected so much. I am, and this, that small gap might explain why we haven't seen a huge increase in, we haven't seen um, a lot of retail sales so far this year because 
I suspect the sellers, because they because Vase did fall so much in 2020 and they didn't recoup any of those losses, sellers aren't willing to discount further. Right. Um, and buyers still want that discount. But again, there's limited pressure in the market. So sellers are kind of saying, no, nah, look, we're not gonna we're not gonna discount anymore. And you know, we've already seen a correction. These are, values are still 20% below what they were three years ago. So we're not discounting any anymore. So I suspect that's a big reason why we're seeing such limited activity in that retail space. Um, industrial is the interesting one. Sydney Industrial, we track their gap is negligible, sort of six, seven percent, meaning three percent. So basically on book value which kind right. of speaks to the returns that we're seeing at the moment. Again, I, I do find that interesting that buyers are still willing to pay book value for for industrial assets, which have seen zero correction in pricing. Hmm. So that's interesting at the moment. But yeah, yeah, there's still significant gaps in that, in that office space. And again, until there's pressure to sell, I can't see that, that gap converging anytime soon. Obviously, like we've looked at, we're just went through the annual sorry full full year results uh, that came through and we saw the valuations come in from all the different major property mm. groups um you know the it still hasn't put the, despite the decline in the valuation it still hasn't put pressure on the lvrs yet this is so i guess that's probably why they're still holding on to the a lot of the assets aren't they they yeah just, I, hmm. yeah i mean there are some Mm. The, the, and it depends on the fund as well, because some funds have to, are part of our um, MSCI core wholesale index, which is your future, your super index. Mm-hmm. And in order to maintain your status in that index, you have to have a gearing, a targeted gearing ratio of below thirty percent. Right. So obviously, with the cost of debt increasing, the values decreasing, that ratio shifts up. So there is some pressure on some of those funds to dispose of assets in order to pay down those um, that those debt levels. Mm. So. There are pockets of LVR issues, um, but it is funds. It is fund specific, and it does depend what you're what you're mandated to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure some of those funds will start to see some of these assets disposed over the next three to six months. Um, but you're right. There's not there's not a heap of um, gearing pressure on a number of, of of the REITs, although some of them do have redemptions, of course, in some of their funds. So that might be a little bit of a little bit of a few pockets of distress mm-hmm. appearing there um so it's there's just not a whole again with this blanket stuff there's not a whole blanket issue that you can kind of throw over everybody and say this is a this is causing problems to everybody and indeed it's not what we're seeing in the in the us either where we're able to track um debt levels we track commercial mortgages on on property mm. um so it's easy enough easy for us to see what's in distress or not and at the moment around six or seven percent of transactions we classify as distressed which right. is very low in the gfc that was about 30 percent. so we're nowhere near those levels. So there's just not a lot of pressure on sellers to sell at the moment. Yeah. So this is the thing I want to, the next question I want to ask you in terms of the profiles of the buyers and sellers um, Mm. who have been the, you know, the most active basically on the buyer side and also on the seller side. Well, because I see that, you know, sorry, go on. (laughs) No, no, I'll be quick. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that, there was an interesting stats in the your report that the offshore buyers, um, you know, have sort of picked up their activity in the second quarter. So that's why I'm keen to, you know, see what other groups are, are active in the sector. There was a tiny bit of increase in offshore activity, mm. mostly driven by Mitsubishi acquiring those Mervac, um built around assets, but it's still extremely low. Offshore investors only account for around 23, 24% of. Right 
acquisition so far that this year, which is very low for them. Um, most years it's around 30%. So we'll see if that changes towards the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, I, I mean, everybody says that cycles are different and cycles end because of different reasons and yada, yada. And by and large, that's probably true. But people's behavior and investor patterns are practically identical from cycle to cycle. And as mm-hmm. no surprise, the REITs and the, the, the institutional guys, they've shut up shop. They're not buying anything. They're hunkering down. Mm-hmm. Whereas the privates are buying a lot. They're very yeah. active. They've, they're looking at sort of $10 billion worth of acquisitions so far wow. this year. Okay. Yeah, so they're, they're the bulk of all acquisitions. Um, mm-hmm. They're still selling stuff as well, but they have a very positive net position. I the difference mm. between acquisitions and, and disposals. And they're the only one of, of they're the only um, investor type that's remotely active, really. The REITs are selling stuff, but they're certainly not buying stuff. And they have a very negative, they have a negative debt position, quite a considerable mm. negative debt position, really. I don't expect them to, to be active until next year, really. Um, and then you have some larger institutions as well, not just the REITs. They've also shut up shop. And again, it, it generally is harder for these guys to, they're not as nimble as the privates. They've yes. got to get deals across ICs and you've got to adhere to shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. So they're a little bit slower in these types of um, in these types of situations. And it's exactly what as what we saw in 2020, where private buyers are the most active. Same thing we saw in the GFC or immediately following the GFC, private buyers are the most active. Same in the late 90s and early 90s. It's always the same. It's those private buyers that that continue to to acquire in um in this type of cycle again they're just more opportunistic a bit more nimble yes um so they tend to be quite active in these uh, in these periods mm. so uh, i mean you look at the uh, super inertia funds too they've been talking about sort of how their valuations have come in so that that, that mm. makes sense that they also yeah that not just the REITs but the institutions like the super funds and the insurance companies etc are sort of stepping away from property or or just yeah holding you know staying in the sidelines to watch what happens yeah mm. bit of a pause to see if those valuations change a bit mm. um i did expect to see a bit more activity towards the end of the year um hasn't really happened yet um yeah, yeah no, most around 40 percent of all offers acquisitions happen in q4 or they settle right. in q4 mm. but i think we would have heard of any major ones by now if they were mm. going to settle in q4 and there's just not a lot out there so a lot of these deals may push out into Q1 if they are happening. Um, so I, I, I don't think we're going to have a big finish to the year like we normally right. do. And looking mm-hmm. at the deals that we have pending, we just don't see that yet. So a lot of this activity may actually push over into, into next year, which mm. is fine. I mean, it, it's uncertainty that causes investors problems, most of all. We know in obviously interest rates have gone up and cost of that has increased, but there was so much uncertainty last year and, and the start of this year about what's going to happen in interest rates, how far they're going to go, what impacts that going to have on the economy. That just kind of stopped and paused. But now there's a bit more certainty about what's going mm. on. Of course, cost of debt's still high, but there's you know where it is, you know where it's going to get to effectively. We know well, in theory, we know we're not going to see another twelve interest rate rises over yes. the next 12 months or so. So that level of certainty will hopefully give investors a bit more um, reason to invest. So we'll see what happens next year, but it doesn't look like we're going to see a big spike in transactions at the end of the year like we normally do. Mm, interesting. Interesting. It, it's it's 
so different to the conversation we had last year <laughs> about, mm. you know, as we're sitting here in September of 2023, um, last year we were saying, oh, look, we're already meeting that target. Um, we're already or we're close to meeting that target, achieving that that um, volume sales and how different it is this year. Um, I think, yeah, it's hard to yeah. uh, sum up um, what we're going to expect for Q3 and Q4 for the investment market. Um, oh, definitely. I mean, my overarching word for the last three years is just turbulent. Yes. It's bounced up and down, up and down. There's no kind of steady slow, slow down or steady slow increase. It's just bouncy, very, very yes. turbulent. So who knows? This could all change in the next month or so. I, I doubt it. But um, mm. like I said, there's a bit more certainty about what's going on. Mm. But it certainly has been turbulent the last, the last few years. So we could do with a bit more of a, a steady steady market absolutely i think um we talked about the you know these events as if like it's their one in a hundred years flood fires <laughs> <laughs> pandemic but the, What's well, next? who knew all three happened at the same time or or not know. at the same time but back to back um, I mean, there are there are four horsemen of the apocalypse we've had three so what's yes. next uh oh <laughs> Don't tempt, don't tempt the... the no, no, absolutely not. The I mean, inflation is getting under control, which will give investors a bit more certainty about their real returns and stuff, which is which mm -hmm. is good. It'll boost retail as well. Obviously, non-discretionary retail is still okay at the moment, um, but people are obviously pairing back on you know, on even that. Um, but discretionary definitely has, has slowed down. So, well, you know, it, it, things are looking better, I'd say. I suppose 12 months ago when we were saying we've already hit all these targets, we knew there was a slowdown coming, had mm -hmm. to happen. I guess now we've come through a lot of that. So yes. maybe we can say that there's going to be an increase in activity over the next 12 months and therefore an increase in performance and everything's going to get a bit better over the next 12 months. We'll see. Mm. But I think we're, we're coming out of it as opposed to 12 months ago and we were definitely coming into it. Mm. Definitely. Well, that's a very good way to end and summarise what we expect or what we could see happen. Um, thank you very much for joining me, Ben. That was a great discussion. Not at all. As always, it's my pleasure, Nelson. Hope to see you again. Absolutely. Absolutely.